Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I, uh, I preached my first sermon um, January 6th, 2013, which um, was 10 years ago Friday. Um, I actually shared the video of it to Facebook, if you're Facebook friends with me and you're interested to hear what I sounded like 10 years ago, go check it out there. Um, a, uh, I preached extremely fast, didn't breathe between sentences at all. Um, some of you thought I preached fast when I first got here. You ain't seen nothing. Um, I've slowed down significantly since I've been here, but um, much, much worse than um, a friend of mine was pastor at the church. It was Johnson Island Baptist Church. That was the name of it. And um, a friend of mine was pastor there, and he told me if I ever felt called to preach, he'd let me preach there. And so when, when I felt the Lord calling me to preach, I called him up and said, hey, um, when can I preach? And so he had me come on a Sunday night on January 6, 2013. And um, a lot of my family and friends came, and then several of the church came. Um, I, I preached, and um, it, was, it was a great time. Three years later, I was working an internship in my hometown, um, in, in my hometown Baptist Association. Um, I, was the, um, I was the summer missions intern there, which essentially means that I go to smaller churches and help them with VBSs. So I did seven VBSs in six weeks. I was hoping I'd hear more gas than that, but um, it was a very draining summer. But um, so when I was doing that, on the weekends, I would either, I was dating Adrian at this point, um, so she was in Louisville, I was in my hometown for the summer, and um, on the weekends, I would either go see her in Louisville, or I would be preaching at a church somewhere. And um, so the first weekend that I'm home for the summer, I preached at Johnson Island again. Um, my friend was no longer the pastor there, they didn't have a pastor. Um, and so I was asked to preach that first Sunday morning um, and evening. And so I preached it. My parents came to the morning service, and um, we, I, I, we did the service. I preached, and we all went to lunch afterwards. And they told me at lunch, Aaron, that's the most dead church I've ever been in. That They were basing that on the fact that nobody sang. Like when the music leader's up there singing, nobody's singing. Um, nobody amened my sermons. And really, not many people were that friendly to them. So they said they could just feel the deadness of the church. I preached again that night at Johnson Island. And at about 5.58, worship starts at 6. At about 5.58, the only people in the room were my dad, me, and the deacon who opened the building. About five more people trickled in at about 6.05 after worship had started. 
Um, I preached a sermon that night that I had preached at my college BCM a year or so before, and it had gone really well at my college BCM. I preached it at this church to this tiny crowd, and like I could sense in the room how little this sermon was getting any reception from anybody. Um, they were bored to tears, not because the sermon was bad, but because they just didn't care. And so I actually, it's one of the few times I've done it, I actually brought the sermon to a conclusion about halfway through and dismissed them because I kind of sensed that's what they wanted. Around 2017, Johnson Island got a new pastor, and he was there for about 10 months, and then he preached his, I've had it with you people sermon, and he quit that day. And within a year or two, Johnson Island shut their doors, that they closed. The church I preached my first sermon in no longer meets. I think there's a church plant that meets there now, but it's not Johnson Island anymore. They died, as many churches do. Lifeway Research found that in 2019, 4,500 churches closed their doors in the U.S. 4,500. So when I describe Johnson Island to you, that's what most people imagine when they think of a dead church. Most people don't think their church is dead because it's not like that. They imagine if, if their church was dead, that, that's what it would be like. Um, they imagine they'd be able to tell. But you can't always tell. You can't always tell when something is dying. Sometimes a dead church appears very alive. There was an actor, a famous movie actor named Chadwick Boseman. Um, he played the superhero Black Panther in four movies that came out. Um, he started that in 2016, played through 2020, and all of a sudden in 2020, reports came out that he had died in his early 40s. Um, all, he, he, he turns out he was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2016 and continued to act despite his illness, and he kept that very private. So he played this powerful superhero in four movies, and then he died. He was struggling with colon cancer, and nobody knew it. He appeared very alive. There was a day when Johnson Island was a more alive church, but at some point they began to decline, and they did nothing to fix it. And there were days when they were still a thriving church, but they had a terminal diagnosis. They were continuing on like Chadwick Bozeman, even though they were dying. And I happened to preach to them when they were on their deathbed, barely conscious. So the question is, how does a church prevent itself from ending up like Johnson Island? How do we make sure that we are not slowly dying as a church? Because no church stays the same forever. They either grow and thrive or they decline and die. That is the future of every church in Tiff County. So how do we as a church put practices in place that prevent us from waking up one day and being on our deathbed as a church? Let's read Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The city of Sardis that this church is in um, was uh, on a situation of they were on a hill, that their city was on a hill. It was on a hill and it was steep enough on the sides that Sardis, the city, was convinced no one would ever be able to scale up it and attack them. So they felt safe and secure. Like they would go on forever with no threat. However, there was one little entry point. They had a crack in their foundation. There was a narrow path going up the hill that was able to be traveled to get up there. And twice it was used to attack the city. Once in 549 B.C., once in 218 B.C. And on top of that, the city was devastated by an earthquake in 17 A.D. All of this happened before Revelation 3 was written. So this city has seen its fair share of, of, of devastation, yet they still believe they're safe. Sardis had two problems. First, they had the crack that people could come up and attack, um, and, and they did nothing about it. They could have easily fortified it and prevented any further attack, but they didn't. And they were on a hill. So there was only so far their city could expand because you can't build and it drop off into the canyon, right? Uh, so the city's limited. And essentially, they were left to decay from the inside. Because as people in the city died, the city would die with them. The city of Sardis helps fill out what the problem is with this church in Sardis, the dead church. It's the fifth of the seven churches of Revelation, and its problem is that it is dead. The problem with dead churches are they plateau. They are limited. They don't want to expand and grow. They're comfortable the way things are, and that results in decay from the inside. Cracks form. Cracks form in every church that have to be sealed up. But cracks don't look that bad. They don't. And over time, you see a crack so much that you kind of get used to it, and it doesn't seem that bad. I was in Adrian and I's bedroom the other day folding laundry, and I looked up, and there was this crack in, like, the baseboard on the ceiling. And I looked at it, and I'm like, has that been there the whole time we've lived here? Or has that formed since we've been here? Because I've probably seen it so much that I don't even think about it. It's just there. Cracks become familiar so that we stop even paying attention to them. And those cracks get bigger and bigger until they break open dramatically and they take you by complete surprise. There was a man who went back to his hometown after being gone for a decade. Um, it was a small town. His mom had passed away in 1997 and he didn't really have any family left in town so he never really went there anymore. But in the late 2000s, he made a visit to his hometown. And he was... He showed up, and he was shocked at how much the town had deteriorated. Shops had closed down downtown. Um, so many buildings and homes looked run down. Um, it was nothing like the town he had grown up in in the 1970s. He visited with an acquaintance that he knew from his childhood, and he just said, Hey, man, what happened to our town? And the man responded, What do you mean? Because this man had lived there. He'd be, he, he didn't realize how bad the town had gotten because he lived there. It wasn't a dramatic change to him. It was day to day. So those shops that closed up downtown, they, they closed one at a time. 
and, and he had seen them close every day, so it didn't seem that odd to him. And that's what happens in churches. Attendance decreases over time, but it happens slowly, so you get used to it. Leaders, leaders step down, and nobody replaces them, but it happens one at a time, and you get used to it. The church slowly erodes, those cracks slowly form until one day they end up like Johnson Island. The church at Sardis very much looked like a successful church. They didn't look like Johnson Island. Look at what Jesus says about them in verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You look alive, but you're dead. This church looks like a good church. They're known for doing stuff. They are known in the community. They are, by all outward appearances, a healthy church. Men are impressed by this church, but God is not. And Jesus can't see deeper. Um, Jesus can't see deeper, and he knows that they're dead. He can see the cancer in their body, despite the fact that they're having a successful career. This church is the walking dead. It's walking around like everything's fine, but it's dead. And we must always be watching that our church doesn't end up like Sardis or Johnson Island. So what does a church do in this condition? If they end up like Sardis, or on, if they're on the way to becoming like Sardis, what do they do? Church experts um, say, based on their research, that um, they, they estimate church health and they, they examine churches, and they estimate that of all the churches in the United States, 10% are healthy, 40% have symptoms of sickness, 40% are very sick, 10% are dying. That's kind of how they break it down. So we must understand that just because we're happy with our church doesn't mean we are perfect and don't have problems to address. So how do we know if we're in trouble of dying? Well, we have to diagnose the problem. The former president of Lifeway named Tom Rayner, um, for a long time, Rayner served as a church consultant. So essentially what that is, is struggling churches would call him and they would have him come and consult and he would come and spend a couple weeks with them. He would examine their worship services. He would examine their fellowships. He would examine the church culture, the facilities, all that stuff. It's like a doctor's visit, but for churches. And then he would give the church either a plan for getting healthy, or he would tell them, hey, you need to get your affairs in order. You've got like a couple years, and you're going to shut your doors. After years of doing this, Rainer wrote a book called Autopsy of a Deceased Church where he shares the most common characteristics of churches he consulted that were dying. These are the things that he saw repeatedly in every church he consulted. Let me tell you what they were. The characteristics he saw in dying churches are these. First, the past is the hero. They held on tightly to the past with each passing year. When someone tried to suggest change, they would fight it. Some would literally say, we will die before we change. That they were not hanging on to biblical truth or Christian morality, nothing doctrinal. They were hanging on to the good old days, the way it used to be. And anyone who tried to bring this up, bring the dangers of this up, was ignored, and they slowly just left the church because they weren't heard. We respect the past. We even revere the past in certain situations, but we can't live in the past. If a church doesn't look ahead to the next generation and grow with them, it becomes little more than a museum of a bygone era, and eventually that museum is going to close out of lack of interest. Secondly, 
The church refused to look like the community. What this means is essentially the church was in a community, and at one time it reflected that community's demographic very well, whether it's age or ethnicity or socioeconomic, whatever. And at some point, the community began to change. People moved out of the community, and new demographics of people moved in. These people who, who moved out still drove to their church because it was their church, but their kids and grandkids didn't. They started going elsewhere. And the church made no effort to reach that new community. If they did, it was simply mass invitation, you know, putting on their sign, everyone's welcome. But the church never went to the community. So, for example, you had an upper-middle-class church of white retired people in a community that was becoming much more lower-middle-class Asian. And the church made no efforts to expand, to reach that Asian population in their community, and they began to have things in their, they didn't begin to have things to minister well to Asian people. So when all the retired white people passed away, their church died with them because nobody was there to keep it going because they were all gone. Nextly, the, the budget moved inwardly. Where the money is, their heart is. That, that's how it works. Dying churches may have a lot of money. Sometimes dying churches have tens of thousands of dollars in the bank when they die because they put their hope in having money as stability. But you have, if you have money, but you don't have people or life, your church dies. But their budget has become all about themselves and what makes them comfortable, what gives them a fun church experience, fellowships for them, activities for them, social events for them. Often even the budget is primarily about facilities and personnel. Make the facility look as nice and comfortable as possible. Pay the pastor and other staff because they view the staff as the only people who do ministry. So the staff is paid to be on-call specialists and caretakers. Nothing in the budget is used for kingdom purposes. Nothing in the budget is used to reach out. It's all being used to keep the social club going. We, of course, pay the staff and take care of the facilities. But if that's all the church is doing, they're completely inward-focused. Next... The Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. That is, the church became less and less concerned with reaching the lost. The church looks back at the day when they had a lot of new people coming to their church, but they're trying to use those methods they used back then to reach people now, and it's not working. Things like high attendance days, things like revivals, things like a call for people to come try out your church. Those things work less and less today because people today are much more skeptical of church than they were 50 years ago. So the church has got to go and reach the lost. They've got to stop expecting people to come and start, come to their church, start doing what Jesus said and go. But the dying church stops reaching out and they get pretty satisfied and comfortable that nobody's getting saved. Next, the preference-driven church. The members were all concerned with getting their way. They wanted things the way they wanted it. They wanted their music style. They wanted their desired length and order of worship, the desired length of the service and, and order of it. They wanted church to meet at the time they wanted it to meet. They wanted their desired colors of rooms and, and their desired activities and programs and the ministers and staff to meet their needs. Rather than having the mind of Christ and putting their desires aside and doing what's best for the glory of God and the good of the congregation. And as everybody fought for their preferences... The church slowly died, never being willing to change. Next, pastoral tenures decrease. The length of the time a pastor is there gets shorter and shorter. 
It's very common in the final couple decades of a dying church to have pretty frequent pastoral turnover. It's a repeating cycle. The church is declining. They call a new pastor, maybe a young one, hoping that will magically make young people start attending the church. That They hope this guy is going to get their church healthy again. That pastor comes in. He leads a few changes. He attempts to make the church healthy. The members don't like it, and they resist. And so the pastor either becomes discouraged and leaves, or worse, he's fired. And they repeat that cycle. And when that cycle is done over and over again, it's like a cancer patient going through new treatments every couple years when the others aren't working. It takes a toll on the body and it kills the person quicker. One of my mentors tells me that if a pastor leaves before five years at a church, it's very likely everything he did at the church will be undone in six to 12 months. So when pastors do that continually because of discouragement, the church shrivels. The church rarely prayed together. This isn't that they never prayed, but that their prayer time became a ritual rather than something that meant anything. These churches would pass out a prayer list with a list of a ton of random people with health problems ranging from hemorrhoids to ingrown toenails to sick dogs. People would call out prayer requests and add it to the list. One person would pray, and that was it. And it's clear from Scripture that prayer as a church was something much deeper than that. People actually seeking the face of God with everything they had. And dying churches stopped doing that. The church had no clear purpose. Dying churches often have an issue of going through the motions, and that becomes routine. They lose vision of why they're doing this in the first place. And a common phrase for them is, we've always done it this way. And when you have no purpose in what you're doing, you can't expect what you're doing to thrive and grow. And finally... The church had become obsessed over the facilities. Taking care of the facilities is right and good. We must steward this well. But becoming obsessed with this building is what dying churches do. Rayner talks about how churches he consulted with had fought over buying a new pulpit, over stained glass windows, over, um, uh, over carpets, over refurbishing a pew that was donated in the name of somebody's grandparent. We're not changing that even though there's holes ripped in it because I donated that in the name of my grandparent. Even he named one church that um, people who paid to remodel a, pr- a particular room would fight over who gets to use that room because they paid for it. You can be sure when a church fights like that over material things, they're dying. These are not the only reasons churches die, but these are the common characteristics Rayner found as he consulted churches. Churches must check themselves always to make sure they're not falling into any of these. So when we've diagnosed the problem, we've got to choose to act. When the, when, we have to choose to act. Churches have to choose to act. Dying churches don't act to fix things. They just let them continue as they are because they're comfortable. Have you ever heard of Harry Truman? Not the president. That's Harry S. Truman. This is Harry Randall Truman. Different guy. He lived in Washington State. He had lived there his for, for a very long time in his house, and he had no intention of moving ever. Problem is, he lived at the foot of Mount St. Helens. And it became apparent that soon the volcano would erupt. It was like 100% certain, scientists were saying. And based on where he lived, that lava was going to shoot out of that volcano, come right down the mountain, right toward his house, and knock it over. 
Friends and family begged him to move and not stay where he was, but he wouldn't listen. He was comfortable where he was, and he wasn't going anywhere. So, on May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted, and lava flowed down the mountain and overtook his home and killed him. He was told of the coming death and danger, and he did nothing. A church that sees that they have problems must choose to act, or they will surely die. So Jesus gives the solution to solve the problem. For the church at Sardis, he gave them a plan. He gave them four commands. In verse 2, wake up. Wake up. Acknowledge that there's something wrong with you. Stop pretending you're doing okay. Even though the world sees you as a good church, Jesus doesn't, he says. There are cracks forming, and if you don't get a handle on those cracks now, you're going to break apart. If you don't catch your spiritual cancer early, you will not be able to stop it from killing you. And then strengthen what remains. Step two, wake up and strengthen what remains. Are you one of those people that just refuses to go to the doctor? Like, like you could cut your finger off in a farm tool and blood shooting out like old faithful, and you're just like, ah, handkerchief, I'll be okay. It, it's almost like this church is like that. Like, almost like Sardis is a person with a terminal illness, and one that could be cured if they just go to the doctor, but they're not going to the doctor, so they're just going to let death take them over. They could survive, they're just choosing not to. They must make a choice to survive, and they would. But they're choosing to lay there and let death overtake them. And Jesus is telling them to strengthen what remains. There's still a little bit of good in your church, he says, but it's weak. It needs to be fortified. It needs to be strengthened. So get your strength back, and then we can focus on the rest of your health. And he says, remember what you've been taught, step three. Um, uh, re remember, this is verse three. Remember what you've received and heard. Remember the truths of the gospel. Remember God's call for the church to go make disciples. Remember the church's call to be holy and distinct from the world. Remember um, the, the glory of God's word and how wonderful it is. Remember who you are and what you're supposed to do. And finally, repent, verse 3. Re remember what you've learned and repent. Repent of how off track you've gotten, he tells them. Also repent for sin in your church. Churches die because sin has been allowed to creep into it in the lives of the people. And it may not be the sin of promiscuity. It may definitely be the sin of apathy. Apathy is a horrible sin that is so easy to give pass to. Not caring what God has said is the same as refusing to listen to what God has said. So he says, repent of it. If you don't, look at what he says. Verse 3, if you don't listen... I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He says, I'm going to declare war against you, and I'm going to bust in and take all your stuff. That's what he says. If you will not listen to me, that's what I'm going to do. What happens if a church doesn't seek to survive? What happens if a church just doesn't heed the warnings of Jesus? What happens if a church finds that they have sickness in them that they need to take care of, and they do nothing? Jesus says, I'll come and judge you. I'll come and judge your church. If a church refuses to listen to Jesus, he will come and judge them. So when a church dies and closes their doors, it happens because Jesus judged them. He has enacted judgment on them for failing to be faithful to what he has called them to. It's a scary thought. 
to think that a church could get to a place where the meek, humble Jesus, who is full of mercy and compassion, could have to come and actually shut them down. But he hasn't done that yet for Sardis, has he? Verses 5 and 6, he hasn't done that yet. The church at Sardis has not been shut down yet. Jesus is still in his mercy, giving them the chance to overcome their decline. He tells them the one who conquers will survive. The one who conquers will survive. Revelation's constantly beating that drum, the one who conquers, the one who conquers. In other words, there's a chance to overcome this decline of the church in Sardis, and it will come through listening. Listening. Look at what he, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It, it's not just like, oh, I heard it. No, it's that I took it to heart and I did what he said. Listen to what the Spirit says. If a church wants to survive, they must heed the words of the Holy Spirit, and they must act because it's the Spirit that gives life. So maybe you ask, Aaron, are you preaching this sermon because you think we're a dead church? I mean, I don't know. I, I think that's more of a question for the Spirit than for me. Um, I'm preaching this sermon because just last year I was reading it, and, and just this, this passage kept gripping me, and especially verse 2, that actually verse 1, I'm sorry, the, the line that he keeps, that he says, you appear to be alive, but you're dead. I've been reading that, and it's just been gripping me, like, I don't ever want our church to become like that, where we appear to be alive, but we're dead. So I've preached this text this morning as a warning to us that we take up action to fight to never get there. But as I've worked through that list of characteristics from Tom Rainer, I hope you see that some of those could describe us. I'm inclined to say we're not a dead church, but, but I'm concerned there are some cracks forming that we got to get under control. So just in these final moments, could I speak very pastorally to us this morning? Just some burdens that I have for our church that grip me regularly. These are things I pray about our church regularly, and they're things that cause me the most heartbreak for our church. Here's just a few concerns I have for our church. First, decreasing attendance. I've been pastor here for four years in a couple weeks. I started January 20th. Um, there's, there's been a significant decrease in attendance since that time. Pretty good number today, but um, significant decrease in attendance in my time here. Now, of course, there's the factor of COVID-19, but that's really no longer the thing that's keeping most people away from church. My first year here, 2019, we averaged 146 on Sunday mornings. That means there's a lot of Sundays we had way more than 146, and some that we had less than 146. In 2022, we averaged 100. That means in four years, we decreased 46 people on average on Sunday mornings. We've gained about four or five families, but we've lost a lot of people. Yeah, just to give you another perspective, Easter Sunday 2019, we had 238 people in this room. Easter Sunday 2022, which of course Easter is the, usually the highest attended Sunday of a year, 2022 we had 153 people. We lost 80 people on Easter Sunday in four years. Understand 80 people is the number of like a good percentage of churches across America, we've lost an entire church on Sunday mornings. Maybe you ask, where have all these people gone? Well, several places. We, we've had a lot of people pass away in four years. 
I've performed 24 funerals in my first four years. I haven't performed the funeral for every member of this church that's passed away in my time. There's been a few times I've been out of town or something. Um, five or six of those 24 funerals are people that were not church members, but most of them were. Some of them were grandparents or Jim Albritton or a few others, but several have become shut-ins since I came. They're, they aren't here because of their health, or maybe they are here, they're just not here as much. And we understand that that's a health issue. We've had several people leave our church and go to other churches in town. None have had a falling out with us or anything. It's, it's ranged from reasons of, I like the music better at this church, or you know my, my, my children got involved in the youth group at this church, and we're going to go where our kids are so we can be together as a family. Um, a few have stopped coming altogether. No matter how much I've reached out to them and tried to get them back, many of them have barely even responded to me when I've tried to reach out to them. And then many of them are still here, but they're sporadic in attendance. And that's the second concern I have for us, sporadic attendance. You have two groups in our church. There's one group that's here every Sunday, very faithful, so thankful for y'all. There's another group that's here once a month or once every six weeks or, or whatever. And for most, it's not because they're just not coming, you know, sleeping in. No, my concern for many of you is you're chronically busy. You're chronically busy. You involve yourself in so many things that it's dangerously impeding on your spiritual life. It's choking out any walk with Christ that you have. If, if we don't have anything going on on Sunday, maybe we'll go to church. Why are you so busy? Either because you've been told by the world that you have to be for your life to have purpose, or you don't know how to say no to people, or you fear missing out, or you feel like you have to justify yourself before God by how busy you are. I don't know, but don't you see you're sick with busyness? Don't you want to get well? This is why Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another as you see the return of Christ drawing near. You need that strengthening of fellow believers in the church. You don't get that from watching on the camera. Thirdly, i got five concerns I'm sharing. Thirdly, very few are serving in our church. We're like most churches. 20% of people do 80% of the work. Believe it or not, churches with 1,000 people struggle to get nursery workers. Now, nursery is not an area we're struggling with. I thank you so much to those of you who have stepped up to serve in nursery. Um, but, but a good amount of the things in our church happen and are done about, by about the same 20 people. And you know who you are if you're one of those 20, because honestly, you're probably pretty weary of serving. Not, not that you don't love our church or, or love what you're doing. You're just carrying the weight year after year, and it's making you so tired. This could easily be solved if other people would step up and carry it with you. Imagine if those 20 people didn't have to each do six or seven things in our church. Imagine we could spread that out, and every person in our church is doing something. They're doing one or two things, and they're putting their heart and soul into it. That's my dream for our church, that is. Where are you serving in our church? I want to see you back next week for Covenant Sunday because we're going to commit to our church covenant together. We're also going to have that day, um, hey, I'm going to give you a booklet and a little checklist that you can turn into me, and it's got all kinds of places on there that you can plug in to serve here. Like so many things, even things that don't exist yet, but there are things I'd love to get started at our church. I just need some people to do it. I need some people to be involved in it that we can get it going, because I can't do all those things by myself. Be here. 
Be prepared to commit to serve somewhere. Fourthly, our youth. Our youth is a great concern of mine. Not the youth group itself, not Clinton, Samantha. They do a great job with our youth and love our youth well. I'm talking about the fact that our youth group has dwindled greatly since I've been here. And I'm not, ta- I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that they've all graduated out because they haven't. Some have. But a lot of our students just aren't coming to youth. And sadly, it's because parents are letting them. I hear often, my kids just don't want to go to youth, so I don't make them. And that's, that's just silly. That They don't want to go to school, just let them skip and see what happens. What do you think you're teaching your kids if you tell them, if you don't like church, you don't have to go? Parents, you must take responsibility for the spiritual life of your kids. Because the odds that they're going to be a professional sports player is so slim. But the odds they're going to meet Jesus is 100%. Finally, final concern. Do we even care if people get saved? Why do we never see people get saved here? Why is it that the only people I've ever baptized at this church are kids that were already here? Like, I'm so thankful kids are getting saved, and, and, and most people get saved when they're kids. But, like, do we view salvation as just a step in childhood, like getting your driver's license? Because that's way more than what it is. Um, wh- why do we never see people from outside the church get saved? Wh- why are we not seeing people in the Chula community get saved? Like, if we want to fix the attendance problem, that's the solution. Reach more people. We're going to continue seeing people pass away in this church. The, the way to replace them is reach new people. Because surveys say that less than 15% of Georgians are in any church on Sunday. This is one I take some responsibility for as I'm the leader of the church and the people are going to follow the pastor. That doesn't get you off the hook. You're called to be obedient, but I'm not very evangelistic myself. It's probably the biggest weakness of my Christian life. I'm not good at sharing my faith with people outside the church. I'm pretty timid with it. I'm repenting of that. I'm working through it to grow. I have a meeting tomorrow with a ministry in Tifton where I'm hoping to get involved, where I can regularly be sharing the gospel with people because I need that. I need that to grow. Are you going to seek to grow in that? Because it's not just my responsibility to reach the lost. It's yours too. I will likely never interact with your lost coworker in your office. They're your mission field. Do you know the gospel message well? And can you share it with the people in your life? I've been gripped for weeks by that phrase, you appear to be alive, but you're dead. A dead church may not look like Johnson Island. It may look like a very active church. And I don't want us to ever become that that statement being true of us. So we must heed the words of Jesus. We must wake up. We must pay careful attention to cracks that might form in us. And we must seek to fortify them. Lest we wake up one day and realize we only have a few months from closing our doors, and there's no chance to turn it around. May we never get there. Let's pray. Father, it is a burden to preach a sermon like this. Um, It's not necessarily fun to preach a sermon like this. But Father, you've gripped me with with that statement. You appear to be alive, but you're dead. I don't think that's true of our church. But Lord, I also know that any church can end up there. And so Lord, I pray that we'll notice cracks and we will fortify them. We won't be like Harry Randall Truman and just watch the lava come down and burn us alive. We will will do something to change that outcome. 
Holy Spirit, move in us. And may we listen to your spirit because you're the one that gives life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.